Time once again for Marriage Encounter, and for those of you who don't know, Marriage Encounter has been part of the culture of our church since we started. Um, invited when we were just 20 or 25 people, and it's gone on every year since. It's simply, very simply, Linda and I opening up our journals of 38 years in marriage and sharing some of the struggles that we've run into and then offering some tools that we discovered along the way. It has become part of our culture. It's fun. There's small group involvement. Um, we laugh a lot and we learn a lot. Every year we kind of set this time aside to revisit our marriages and to dial back in and figure out and marriages work all the time and it will be, but there's so much treasure there. So if you could join us, please join us. The dates are there. You can text. Um, and the thing I want to also say is there's no, we don't want anybody to miss this because of money. Um, if there, when you text this form, we'll come back. And if you need some help, you just write in the comments that you need some help to make sure because the, there is a, um, uh, hour and a half session that we share. And then there's an hour and a half mandatory date following. We know that means childcare. And so we want to help with that. Nobody should miss that because of money and last different this year. We're using this as an outreach this year. We're encouraging you, please. This is the easiest way to invite friends of yours to church and a church experience. So please, invite your friends to come um, experience Marriage Encounter. And there'll be more information. Text that number. So, um, all right. So good to see you. I can kind of see you. Um, welcome, Antioch family and visitors. <laughs> that, uh, it's so good. There we go. <laughs> That's a little better. Thank you. Um, so good to see you, and so good to see so many of you starting to return again. That's encouraging, and for those of you who are new, we're really glad to see you because we're encouraged every time we see new people visiting with us. We are a Bible-believing, note-taking church, so if you could, would you please take out your Bibles and something to take note with, notes with? We're going to be mainly camping on a verse, two verses, Matthew 16, 24 through 25. Matthew 16, 24 through 25. We have been revisiting the word that God gave this body in 2018. That word was and is and remains that we are called to be Jesus people. We have not acknowledged that there is definitely a difference. There is a difference in what the world sees in everyday Christianity and when they observe someone living radically for Jesus. We've also been going through this series acknowledging that our numbers as Christians in the world doesn't seem to match our impact. Our numbers seem greater than our impact. We believe we can, should, and must have greater impact on our world. With this desire, we've been going through some of the, most, some of the distinctives that we see that might distinguish us from everyday Christianity. Notable differences that when the world encounters Jesus, that they will see Jesus' people. I'll repeat again that we do not do this in judgment and cynicism. The church is the hope of the world, period. Antioch is not the hope of the world. The church as a whole is a hope of the world. We are asking honest questions about me and you and us. We've said this over and over again. This is just family time for us to acknowledge the call that's on our lives. It has nothing to do with judging anyone else's call on their lives. In our family time, we have identified that there is definitely a difference between just being a convert to Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. There's a difference. If we're going to be Jesus' people, we must continue the journey beyond conversion and on to discipleship. 
In our family time, we also identified that we cannot stop at the gift, the great gift of heaven. Just like we can't stop at conversion, neither can we stop at the great gift of heaven. Yes, while heaven is our reward and there is no salvation without the gift of heaven, just as Jesus bled, suffered, and died so that we could go to heaven, his bleeding, his suffering, his dying was also so that he could redeem us as image bearers of God and send us out into the world to bring healing and justice and mercy and the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit right here to bring his kingdom to the earth. While Jesus died to allow us to go to heaven, he also died to bring heaven here. And if we're going to be Jesus people, we have to walk into that. This week, I'll wrap up the series sharing one last area that I believe distinguishes us and distinguishes Jesus' people. One last area that God had to challenge me and change me in. Again, I share my journey, and I'm not saying it's everybody's, but with the hope that some of us might also find ourselves in this journey and be impacted by it. So these are just some of the challenges and the changes that God brought to me. The change that God needed to make in my thinking and my understanding and my loving him is captured in two verses that both record a command of Jesus and a promise from Jesus. They record a command of Jesus and a promise from Jesus. First, the command, John 16, or Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And that verse perfectly described the life I was trying to live for Jesus. This perfectly wrapped up what I heard in the teaching that I received. Now I grant that it may have been my issue, but this is all that I heard in the teaching that I received. It wrapped it up the entirety of what I heard, believed, and was living out. And my understanding was simply this. Yes, I indeed realized I was a sinner. I indeed realized I needed a savior. I indeed realized that Jesus was alone, that savior and the only savior. I indeed knew that I needed a payment for my sin and a sacrifice for my sins. And I indeed understood that there was no other way to salvation other than Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, because of all that he had done for me, then Jesus required that I come after him, deny myself, and take up my cross. And I knew that that was right and it was just. So I had a great debt. That debt was paid in full by Jesus and no one else could pay that debt. And while I conceded that I could never fully repay that debt, I owed it to Jesus to live out the rest of my life indebted to Jesus. Is this true? Yes. Is it right? Yes. Is it just? Yes. Would it be perfectly just and right if the good news ended right there? Yes. But stopping at that command left me with this kind of thought process. I received the forgiveness of God and the gift of heaven. And in return, I need to deny some things. I need to deny myself some things. Some of those things are good. Some of them are fun. Some of them are pleasures. Some of them are comforts. But I need to deny those things, things like money, 
is that okay? Yes, it's right. He has the right to have me deny some of those good things. Great price, and he asked me to deny some of those things. In short, in short, following Jesus in my mind was a trade-off. It was a good trade-off. It was a good trade-off, but still a trade-off. But just like in the past two weeks, I discovered there was more. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit always, always gives us more than we think, more than we can imagine, and more than we can even comprehend. Think about it. Think about what I just described. It all works as an equation, doesn't it? It's a fairly common equation. It's a fairly logical equation. In fact, it's a fairly worldly equation. It's a worldly transactional relationship. You do something, somebody does something great for you, you owe them in return. Is it fair? Yes. Is it just? Yes. But God is wholly greater than that and has so much more for us than is logical, than what makes sense then it resembles a worldly transactional relationship. We find the more in the words Jesus spoke immediately following the command to deny ourselves, the command to take up our cross. We find it in verse 25. Immediately following this command, Jesus gives us his promise. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses for life for my sake will find it. Of course, God once again does something completely different than world thinking, completely different than world transaction. World economy, I do something for you, you owe me in return. God's economy, I do something for you, you live for me, and I give you even more. And I read these two verses dozens of times, but somehow in the command part, somehow the command part always overpowered the promise part. And part of it was that I understood this promise of eternal life to be heaven. I understood that part of my command to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. The sacrifices that I would make here would be rewarded when I reached there. And God took me on a beautiful journey and I discovered that this promise was indeed eternal life. But eternal life begins now. Eternal life is today. And for every day. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit could have stopped at you owe me. But God did not stop there. God the Son continued, live for me. God the Holy Spirit continued, I will give you the power for new life. This message is about how much my understanding of the promise attached to the command would change my journey with Jesus changed the way I walked out my faith. I have a confession to make. I don't know if this is true of any other Christian, but I want you to know it has happened to me many, many, many times. There have been times when my life has gotten hard. Really hard. Really, really hard. Even as a Christian. 
in those times, as much as the equation of paying a debt back to Jesus was fair and right and just, I just didn't have it in me to live that debt. I didn't have it in me. It was on those times, these times of my deepest need, that the promise sustained me. The promise of life kept me in the faith, kept me pushing towards Jesus. It was the promise of life that saved me. I would come to know how critical and life-empowering and life-saving the promise of the life of life from the Lord is. I would come to realize I needed the promise in order to live the command. I needed the promise if I was going to live the command. I needed to grow in the truth that living out our lives as Jesus people is not just our call, it is our blessing. It is our privilege and our blessing. It is my journey of discovering the promise of life that gives us the title for this week's series wrap-up, Jesus People, so much more than just a debt we owe. So living just the command to deny myself, to take up my cross for Jesus, left me living a trade-off mentality. I got saved. I got the gift of heaven. The price paid is that I forego some of the good stuff here on earth. If you ask me why, Why does God ask you to give up some of that good stuff? Um, I don't know. Because he's God. And he can. I had a tremendous conversation with a young man of God recently, and we got just to this point of asking, why are we following God? Um, And his answer was, because he's God. And because he says so, good answer. And I asked that person, that young man of God, I said, that, you don't do well with arbitrary, do you? And he said, I think I know what that means. And no, I don't do well with arbitrary. That was a great honest answer. And I don't do well with arbitrary. Let's look at the definition, arbitrary. Arbitrary means based on a random choice or personal whim rather than any reason or system. And I realized that sometimes I thought God was arbitrary. Some of his commands were arbitrary. Some of the laws that he put forth were arbitrary. And that's it. That's where I got stuck. And why? Because he's God. No. God is not arbitrary, ever. Every command he gives us has a purpose. And what are his purposes for us? What are his purposes for us? Now, I'm going to ask you in this section... This is not for teaching, so I'm going to ask you to put down your note stuff. Because this is a section I'm going to ask you to dive in later on your own. But for now, I just want you to let these words bathe you. This is not for teaching. This is for bathing in, okay? What are God's purposes for us in his commands? In Deuteronomy, God's promises, his commands are for our good and for the good of our families. In Numbers, he commands us so that we will be blessed. In Psalms, his commands are delight, our light, our fountain, our shield, our sun, our joy, our glory, and he desires to give us our desires. In Isaiah, his commands are to give us rest and our strength. In Jeremiah, he is shepherding us to the every gener- and every generation to come. In Ezekiel, he is giving us a new 
heart. In John, he's giving us bread so that we never hunger, and he's giving water so that we will never thirst. In Romans, it is his desire to give us joy and peace and hope that never disappoints. In Corinthians, he shares his mysteries, his knowledge, and his wisdom with us through his commands. In Colossians, he's working to complete us through his commands. In Hebrews, he is desiring to share his holiness with us through his commands. And in 1 Peter, he promised us to lead us in everything we need. That's God's purpose in his commands. Now, let's look at God's commands from the other angle about this idea that maybe he's keeping some of the good stuff from us. He can, he has the right, but some of that stuff that he's keeping us from, it's actually good. Let's just, again, listen. In 1 Samuel 12, 21, you must not turn aside from me for when you go after other things, they will be futile. They cannot proffer. They cannot deliver. They are all futile. Isaiah 48, 17, this is what I say to you. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. In Jeremiah, my people, they've committed two sins. They have forsaken me and they have dug dug for themselves cisterns. But those cisterns that they've dug for themselves cannot hold water. In John 6.63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh, it doesn't profit anything. And in 1 Peter 2.11, beloved, I urge you to, as aliens, as strangers, to abstain from your fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. According to God, he's not asking us to give up any of the good stuff. He's keeping us from stuff that can only disappoint, that wages war against us and ultimately will destroy us. Now you can pick up your note-taking stuff again. And do me a favor. Write down these thoughts with this headline. God does not do arbitrary. And the first thought is God's every desire for you is good. And the second, anything he keeps you from is for your own good. That's the truth of the scriptures. Every direction he gives us is to protect life and to give life. It's all through the scriptures and Jesus said it real clearly when Jesus said this, apart from me, you have no life in yourselves. Apart from me, you have no life in yourselves. But we gotta be honest. (laughs) We cannot say amen to that too quickly. We must take an honest look at life as Jesus prescribes it. If someone hits you, let them hit you again. If someone takes your clothes, go to your closet and give them more. If, forgive everyone who sins against you. Seek to serve and not to be served. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and you will get by giving and you will live by dying. Now let's be honest. If someone comes up to you and says, what is the prescription for life? Is that what you're going to come up with? I want to tell you, not me. 
yeah, yeah, I think dying, dying's what the prescription is. That's what I want, that, that's what we need. That's not the prescription that I come up with. My mind, my heart, my flesh, honestly, everything in me cries out. That doesn't sound like life to me. This is not a tweak of the worldly life. It turns it on its head. And that's why this series is about renewing our mind to the truths of God and how true everything he says is. My needing you for heaven, God? Yes, that makes sense. It's intuitive. I've messed up. I need a savior. That makes sense. But your prescription of life, I think I can do that on my own. That just doesn't make sense. It can't be that. And that's right there that we get struck. In fact, there's an old Christian joke. There's an old Christian joke. And it goes like this. That there's a Christian man walking along the path and he falls over the side of the path and on the way down of the cliff, he grabs onto a branch. He's hanging by the branch waiting for someone to come and help him. No one comes by. He keeps crying out. He keeps crying out. Finally, God answers him. He says, I will help you. And the man says, great, what do I do? And God says, let go of the branch. And the man waits for a minute and yells out again, is there anybody else that can help me? And I used to laugh at that joke, but I don't anymore because I realize the power of the truth in it. Even as Christians, I got stuck hanging on to some branches because God's prescription of letting go just didn't make sense. God, I said to God, I get that this branch isn't right. I know this branch doesn't feel right. I know this is not where I belong. But your prescription of letting go, it can't be that. And I will wait on my branch until something else comes along that makes a little more sense. And we can stay there for weeks, for months, for years. Listen to me, you could stay there your whole life because there is no other answer that will come along. And it will keep you from the fullness of life that Jesus has for us. Now, I wanna apologize ahead of time because this next section, I am gonna be spending a lot of time on me. But I figured it would, you'd be happier with me sharing my struggles than me waiting for you guys to come up and share yours. So I hope you'll bear with me, but these are all about me. But I wanted to be honest to share. I wanted to share four branches that I took, held on to too long in my journey. And I think they're fairly common branches because I think Jesus refers to them. He said, it would be worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desire for other things that would enter in and choke him out. Choke faith out. Choke Jesus out. And I found it was these very things stealing the life of Jesus had promised from me, even after I was converted. Money. God said there was no life in chasing money. I responded, yes, there is. Money was going to give me comfort. Money was going to give me pleasure. Money was going to give me security. I knew this. Had it yet? No. But I was going to stay on my branch until it did. 
And I kept fighting that, and I kept struggling year after year after year. And finally, I've shared this before, so I'm not going to go into detail, but I met a man on the side of the road when I stopped to help him fix his car. The man had nothing compared to what I had, except the joy that I could not explain. And I left that man walking away, knowing that as he drove away after I helped him, I knew in his heart I had nothing he wanted. And I sat there saying I'd give anything to have whatever that man had. And all I knew about him was he found it in the Bible. And so that started my journey on finding out what does God have to say about money. I want to be as transparent as I can. I was young. I hit a fairly high level of income at an early time. I found out the truth of God's teaching in a meeting with some financial counselors, Christian financial counselors. I had more than most people would have at my age. I had it longer to invest. I had all this going for me, and they did a big financial plan. I came back in two weeks expecting that they were going to say, you got nothing to worry about, and finally I would have reached it. And instead, I walked into that meeting, and they said, here's the 15 years that you still have to do. And I got angry because I looked at them, and I said, then what does the rest of the world do? And I looked at the formulas and I said, and by the way, if the inflation rate changes 3% or 1%, the whole thing gets wiped out. And they said, right. And I went away and I prayed for three hours. And I just sat and said, God, what do I do? That's what started my turn to say, start giving it away. And it was there that I got life totally opposite of what everything in my body was telling me to do. Now, can I give you some testimonies from the other side? Because sometimes this is tough. Let's go to the other side. I want to tell you about a man. Well, I'll just go to the light. USA Today did an article and they did an article and they took out non-believers, just two guys went around the country and they find, and they said, how much does it take to be at peace and how much does it take to be rich in America? And they talked to one person who retired with about a million dollars, I think was the starting point. And that guy said, you know, it's good. I, I'm okay. But if I, I would have stayed in it until I had two. So then they flew to the other part of the country and this guy talked to somebody who had $2 million. And then how's it? Three would have been better. So they found three. They did three, five, up to $20 million. You know what the guy with $20 million said? You know, I need just a little bit more because you're really free when you have a jet. This is, you could, I could show you this article. These two non-believers came to this conclusion at the end, and here's exactly what they said. We found out what it takes to be at peace with money, and it's exactly twice as much as whatever you have today. I could have beat them to that because if Proverbs 23, 4, and 5 says this, do not worry yourself gain to, to gain wealth. See from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle and flies towards the heavens. That was me. The Bible simply teaches you set your eyes on that. It will keep rising every time you almost get it and you will never quite get there. And finally I said, enough, enough. Stop doing it my way. And I finally turned and I lived. I held on to the branch of lust too long. Lynn and I were married right out of college. All my friends were single and they were living the life. I saw them, or at least I thought so. I had a war going on in my mind. Can it really be that one person for a lifetime can fulfill anybody? 
And my push was getting challenged all the time. I have never been unfaithful to Linda, but I chased the fulfillment in so many other ways, and they never satisfied me, never fulfilled me. I chased, I chased, I chased, and I never got anything but shame and distortion and disappointment and frustration and living death. My chasing gave me nothing except all I needed was more, just a little bit more. And I found out what was giving me was nothing but a thief, stealing everything that I desired and destroying and stealing from my marriage and what could give me what I needed. And God's word says this in Proverbs seven twenty two: all at once he followed her like an ox going to slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. I was the ox and I was the deer. Over 30 years ago, I stepped away from that and into purity and I turned to life instead. And I found the treasures and the joy God has in the gift of monogamy. I found life, just as Jesus had promised it. In our 30th anniversary, I sat on a balcony overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, and we wept together and thanked God for the gift of monogamy. My time and schedule. I held on to the branch of control far too long. I held tight to the control of my schedule, my activities, my comfort, my rest. If there's one thing I knew about what I needed, it was what I needed to be restful, what I needed to be charged up, what I needed to, and how I needed to roll my schedule. And so I did. I hit a really rough patch in life, really rough patch. I was leading my family. I was an elder at church. I was aboard on the school, and I hit an emotional and physical and spiritual exhausted, and it's so much so that it scared me, and I cried out to God, I need rest. I had stopped sleeping. I need to sleep. Instead, God invited me to go to Romania. I walked out of a board meeting one night, and a friend looked at me and said, I think God is telling you to go to Romania. I was furious. If, I, if that guy would have heard what was going on in my head when he said that. And I went home to Linda and I said, I, this guy says I need to go to Romania. Let's pray about it. Two weeks later, we come up and said, what do you think? I think you're supposed to go to Romania. I flew to Romania. Everybody else that went with me slept the whole time. I didn't sleep at all. I said to my friend who invited me, I said, okay, I will go to Romania, but I will not preach. I was preaching at the church I was preaching at before I went and when I came back. I said, but I will not preach. So I land in Romania, and I meet a man named Octavian. And as we're driving, from, I was thought, I'll just sleep from the airport to the city. It was a two-hour drive, and all he did was talk with me. And he just asked me about my faith, and he asked me about where I was in my journey. And then we got two minutes outside the city, and he looked at me, and he said, God said, you're supposed to preach tonight. And so I preached. And the next night, I said, Octavian, I wonder, he goes, no, you're supposed to preach again. The third night, we were going to believe, and I said, Octavian, I want to hear you preach. And he goes, oh, don't worry. He goes, we're not, you're not preaching in the city. Got me in a van. We drove out through the snow, and we drove up to this little white house with a stove with 11 people in it. And he turned to me with tears in his eyes, and he said, you've preached to 7,000. You've preached to 400. God wants you to preach to these 11. And I walked into this little house, and there's an oven-made loaf of bread, and we serve communion. And I watched this shepherd, shepherd his people. And it made me brand new. I had told God I needed to stay home. He said, you need to go to Romania. I told God I needed to sleep. I didn't sleep at all in the trip. I told God I didn't need to preach. He had me preach every day. I told God I needed to stay home and I needed to be alone. He said, you need Octavian. And I realized I don't know what I need. 
and I turned my control over. I came home a physical, emotional, and spiritual brand new life. I held too long the branch of my family. I held this branch with every good intention. I held on to my family tightly because I wanted to teach them. I wanted to provide for them. I wanted to protect them. My intentions were honorable and loving in the issue. Everything that I wanted was good. Uh, the issue with Ayer was I just couldn't do it. I tried really hard, but I just couldn't do it. I did teach my family, and that was good. But I found in letting go, I found that one of the greatest gifts I could give my family was to say, I don't know, and ask them what God was telling them. Over the many seasons of life, I realized I owe it to my family to work hard to provide, but only God can guarantee whether or not there will be enough. And my overstriving, it became a distraction. It wasn't a blessing. Keep them safe. I'm a resourced white man living in America, meaning I have every advantage there is in the world, and I couldn't keep my family safe. Andrew has shared part of his journey of his life struggles that he ran into in his journey to faith. I couldn't keep him from the pain of that journey. I have sat in the ER with a child multiple times over many, many years. Yes, for those scary cuts and bruises and scratches, but also several times with the very real possibility that a child would die that night. And I could do nothing. I've watched my children go into adults and go through waters and fires I was unable to keep them from. I've seen Linda at times go through grief I was unable to relieve. I wrote a letter to Jesus at my lowest point one morning, a time when I did think my child was gonna die and that letter said, for the first time, Lord, I'm bringing my family completely and fully to you. And I got down on my tile floor and I wept and Jesus got down on the floor with me and gave me this promise. He said, I will be enough for you and for them, whether in life or in death. And I believed him, life, life. I shared you the branch illustration one day in a Bible study and you know what? Somebody came up to me afterwards and they said, Steve, you forgot to tell the end of the story. I said, what's the end of the story? He said, well, when the man let go, he found out that there was a ledge just three inches below him. <sighs> I said, I will never tell that story. There is no promise in the scriptures that you will only fall three inches. That is not in the gospels. I have fallen a lot farther than three inches. I have fallen so far, I've gotten crushed. But one of my children said it best. When I asked if I could share their story, she said to me, you can if you promise to share this, that in the falling, I found the presence of God and it was worth it. We will fall, but we will find the presence of God. And that is the gift of life. No, when you let go, you will die. And in the dying, you will live. It was the command to deny that brought me first to the cross of Jesus, but it was the promise of life that has kept me at the cross. Turns out life with Jesus isn't a trade-off at all. He doesn't ask me to give up any good stuff. I won't say it's easy. There is a cost. There is. But following Jesus is not trading one life for another. 
It's letting go of a life that can't possibly deliver for a life that can't possibly fail. That's the promise of Jesus. The rich young ruler, it's the parable of the branch lived out. A man comes and comes to Jesus and says, how do I really, really, really live? Nobody had to tell him that he was at the wrong place. He's on a branch. Nobody had to tell him he was on a branch. Jesus didn't come to him. He came to Jesus and said, I'm on this branch. How do I live? And Jesus said, let go. And the scriptures tell us he couldn't. There must be another way. If we want to live as Jesus people, I have to tell you, we will let go of our branches and we will fall. And in the falling, we will live. I talked to a man who ended his life, he was 92 years old, and I asked him, I said, Bob, do you have any words for me before you pass? And he said, only this, faith works. And it's the only thing that works. Every minute of every day, God promises we have all that we need. And it's summed up in this, the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Will you stand with me? Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you for a prescription of life that we must acknowledge looks very different than the one where we would write. Would you please help us as a group of people to walk out this faith as we've been called to live? This morning, there will be people of our prayer from our prayer team and if there's anything you want prayer for along your journey, anything you want prayer for along your journey, please come forward and receive prayer this morning. Just come forward. Don't leave without getting, even if you need a word of encouragement, if you need, this isn't a counseling period, just an ask. What can we pray for you for? We want to be a people who pray into these needs. So come forward if you need any prayer this morning.